my name is Kristen Zeitler. I'm one of the ID pharmacists at Tampa General. I do also have Mel and Nick in the back over there um, joining me today. They're the other ID pharmacists at Tampa General. So the three of us will interact with you um, very frequently as you're on rotation at Tampa General. Um, however, we also have colleagues at the VA and Moffitt that you'll interact with with patients um, on services over there. So I've slightly renamed um, this title to Essentials of Antimicrobial Dosing. While the focus is going to be antibiotics, I would argue that a lot of these concepts are going to apply to our antivirals, antifungals, um, so we don't want to forget about them. This morning, we're going to highlight the importance of understanding drug dosing concepts. We'll review pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic principles, which we'll refer to as PKPD. And then we'll talk about PKPD and patient-specific factors that are going to influence our antimicrobial dosing. The first thing you're probably asking is, why should we as physicians, as ID fellows, care about drug dosing? Because we have pharmacists to call. Um, and while that is true, um, and that's a big reason why we support you guys and why we work with you very closely, um, there are arguments that all of us should know key concepts of antibiotic dosing. We want to improve our patient outcomes. Ideally, if we get patients on the right dose of our drugs up front, we can improve their outcomes by having them be on antibiotics shorter. If we're going to treat them early and upfront appropriately, they shouldn't need these prolonged um, therapies um, in many situations. If they're getting better faster, hopefully they can get out of the ICU to the floor and then out of the hospital that much more quickly so they're not in the hospital to get some complications that we know these patients are going to encounter. If we're dosing our drugs appropriately, hopefully we're reducing the chance for adverse events and that we're also minimizing the chance um, that we are going to select out for drug resistance. If we're underdosing drugs, maybe we're going to select out for heteroresistant populations that are going to cause further problems down the line. And then most importantly to you guys, so that your ID pharmacist and other pharmacy colleagues aren't harassing you all the time with questions um, and recommendations on your drug dosing. So you might say, well, can I just call the ID pharmacist if I have questions? And yes, that's true. At many large hospitals across the country, you're going to have pharmacists that are specifically trained in ID concepts. Um, and we're going to be there during the week, during business hours. But y'all are on call. You're going to get pages overnight. And while maybe you want to call one of us at midnight, technically, you know, that's probably not um, encouraged by your, your fellowship program or by your, your fellow attendings. Um, so we may not be available when you have those midnight calls and when you get those questions. Um, if you are working in areas of the country that are not as populated, that don't have as big hospitals, maybe you're at a critical access hospital, you're going to have pharmacy support, but those pharmacists may not be specifically trained in ID concepts um, the same way that pharmacists in larger institutions are. And then also as it relates to any of your clinic requirements, you probably are not working in a clinic where you're going to have a pharmacist on site, especially an ID pharmacist. If you do work in that setting, consider yourself very lucky. Um, but also in these settings, you're going to need to know a lot of those dosing concepts. So we'll move into how I've broken down. You guys think about drug dosing. I will. I do highlight these are my suggestions. Um, if you talk to myself, myself, Mel and Nick, we're probably going to have three different views of certain concepts here. If you go to the VA, you go to Moffitt, you're also going to hear slightly different viewpoints on drug dosing from them. Um, it's not meant to confuse you guys. I know it's probably frustrating. Oh, this person says this, this person says that. You're going to hear variations because it's going to be dependent on how we all were trained, what patient populations we see on a daily basis at our institutions. 
What I hope is that the general concepts is what's going to be consistent amongst all of us that you talk to. Um, there's just going to be some variations in our perspectives. And that's also going to go for all the attendings that you work with on the different services, too. We talk about pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics a lot, but I wanted to break down what these terms were so we make sure that we're understanding them. When we talk about pharmacokinetics of our antimicrobials, we're looking at what the body does to the drug, how the drug is actually distributed in the body, how much of the drug we actually see in the body, um, how is it metabolized, and then how is it eliminated from our system. Contrasting this with pharmacodynamics, this is when the drug is actually in the body and what the drug is doing both to the organism that it's treating, but then also what it's doing to the parts of the body, whether we're seeing the side effects, the adverse events that come from drugs, when we're giving potentially too much, we're getting into that toxic range. This is a visual I wanted to include in case anyone's more of a visual learner, not a word, um, an auditory learner. This is a visual from a paper from 98 from Bill Craig. Um, that really also breaks down what I just said, just more in picture form instead of word form. So the ne that next, I wanted to go into the different components of pharmacokinetics in a little more depth so that we try to break them and how they relate to drug dosing. So first is absorption. And when we talk about absorption, you're probably familiar with the term bioavailability, but you might say, what does that really mean? Um, so we're looking at what percentage of the drug dose actually reaches the systemic circulation in the body. Now, when we give a medication intravenously, 100% of that dose is gonna be available in the systemic circulation. Contrasting this with oral medications, um, oral medications are not always 100% bioavailable. We know that there's um, many differences between our drug classes. I'll show you a visual that does break down the different drug classes and how there are differences between them. And those are important, especially when we're transitioning patients to oral therapy, that's going to potentially influence the dose that we choose. Now, it's important to highlight that just because a drug is highly bioavailable or 100% bioavailable, it doesn't mean that all of that drug is getting to the site of infection that we want to treat. There's going to be other things that we have to be considering in order to say, is this drug getting to the site of infection, pneumonia, brain, penetrating the blood-brain barrier? Um, but that's going to come in subsequent slides. I'm guessing that everyone in this room is familiar with Paul Sachs out of the Brigham in Boston, big HIV guru. Um, he does have a blog that he publishes updates um, every few weeks, and he's very witty personality, really breaks things down at a level that physicians, pharmacists, any healthcare practitioner can understand and appreciate. A blog post back from 2013 was one where he commented on bioavailability of drugs, what that means and how it's going to influence um, a provider's choice of drug depending on the infection that you're treating. So this screenshot is showing a table that he included in that particular blog post. I think it's a nice visual that compares and contrasts the differences in these drug classes. Now, it doesn't mean that any of the drugs in that red section that are less than 60% bioavailable are ones that we avoid. It just means that if we're choosing those drugs, we have to understand that they may not penetrate at standard doses to our particular site of infection that we're treating, or we may need to increase our doses in order to, over, in order to overcome some of those bioavailability decreases. Moving into uh, distribution, this is really asking the question of where the drug is going in the body. And a term that we use on the pharmacy side a lot is volume of distribution. 
This is trying to relate the total amount of drug in the body to the plasma concentration of that drug at any given time. So we know that there's going to be huge volume shifts in our patients, especially sepsis patients, fluid resuscitation, fluid shifts. So this is going to influence um, potentially some of the dosing that we give to these patients. You'll hear maybe pharmacists talk about high volume of distribution drugs, low volume of distribution drugs. What this really means is that high VD drugs tend to distribute into our tissues a bit more. So very highly concentrated in our tissues. If we're trying to treat infections there, those are drugs that we may tend to move towards. Versus drugs with a low volume of distribution are gonna to tend to stay in the plasma a bit more. They might get into the tissues, but either you have to be aggressive with your dosing or they're not gonna get into the tissues in the same um, concentrations as our high VD drugs. There's going to be other things that will influence a drug's volume of distribution. I do have several of them up here on this slide. To break down a few of these a bit more, molecular weight and size, this isn't something you guys are gonna know off the top of your head. I would say most, if not all pharmacists have molecular weight um, memorized. However, you probably know general concepts. So a drug such as oxacillin, metronidazole, penetrate the blood-brain barrier very well because their smaller molecules are able to get across those barriers very well. Um, if I asked Mel and Nick right now, they could not tell me the molecular weight of those drugs, um, but we know that... What's that? Um, but we know that the parameters and the um, characteristics of these drugs are smaller and allow them to penetrate those barriers more easily. This is going to contrast to a drug that is not available right now, but Synersid. We would not use Synersid to, to treat a meningitis case because the molecular weight, I looked this up before I came here, is 1,700, way too big to penetrate the blood-brain barrier. So we know that we're not going to use that drug to treat an invasive infection like meningitis. So that's just where this concept comes into play and why we choose certain drugs over others. Um, another one is going to be inflammation. So again, in the case of meningitis, when there's the presence of inflammation, easier for many drugs to cross the blood-brain barrier. As we decrease that inflammation, the concern is that for certain drugs, that penetration is not going to occur as easily. From a pharmacist's perspective, we think and use this equation um, very often, not that we're writing it down, but we're thinking about it in our mind, and it relates the concentration of drug in the body to the dose or amount of drug um, compared to the volume. How you all can think about this related to an example is, let's say you have a sepsis patient. Sepsis alert is called fluid resuscitated significantly, a lot of liters that are added to that body. If we are thinking that our goal is either to target a certain drug concentration or maintain that drug concentration in our patient as we're giving antibiotic, what do you think we are going to need to do in this situation? Exactly. So our dose is going to need to be increased to overcome and compensate for all of that fluid that is being administered to that sepsis patient. That's where some of our drug dosing concepts are coming into play. So for like... So, I mean, that kind of makes sense in the sense that like like one versus two gram doses for a septic, I think, is that taking it into consideration that this person will be properly resuscitated? 
And do you have to kind of like adjust for that if they're not appropriately like resuscitated based on kind of like general acceptance principle? So it, it's a good question. It doesn't mean that, oh, if they get less than 30 mils per kilo that I wouldn't increase my dose. If they got 15, um, you know, mils per kilo, I'm going to do, you know, the normal dosing. It's one thing that we think about that's going to go into the consideration of doses. Um, this is going to be especially important for our hydrophilic doses. So y'all don't see um, aminoglycosides used that much. But if you did have a sepsis patient, maybe you get called overnight and it's like, oh yeah, give a dose of Tobra. I'm not going to give a two milligram per kilo dose of Tobra in someone who's getting a lot of extra fluid because I need to, and we'll talk about this a little bit um, later, I need to hit my peak. And I know that this drug is going to distribute into all of that excess fluid that the patient got. Right. So in order to hit that peak with this extra fluid on board, regardless of how much it is, I'm going to need to increase my dose to compensate. Okay. Mm -hmm. Moving into metabolism, we won't focus on this too much. Once a drug comes in the body, it has to get broken down somehow into components that will allow it to be eliminated from the body, whether it's through the feces, through um, the liver otherwise, or through the kidney. The big thing from a metabolism standpoint is a lot of this gets done in the liver. That's where our cytochrome P450 enzymes come from. And from me, from a pharmacist brain, I'm thinking drug interactions. All the lights are going off there. And y'all are going to be calling your pharmacist to say, hey, how can I compensate for this drug interaction? Do I need to avoid this drug combination? Or what can I do with my dosing because of this drug interaction? I have a few examples here of the classic drugs you're going to expect drug interactions with, whether it's inducers of metabolism of other drugs or um, inhibitors. So if we have these drug inducers on board, rifampin, efavirenz, and non-infectious disease drugs like carbamazepine and phenytoin, expect that these are going to induce the metabolism of other drugs, meaning that those drug concentrations are gonna go down. So we definitely need to think about this importantly. We do run into rifampin and anticoagulants a lot. Um, we have a patient on the ID2 service that's on rifampin and warfarin. Hey, that's going to be really that we have to compensate our warfarin dosing because of that induction effect of rifampin. From an inhibitor standpoint, we have our azole antifungals. And I have a little note here. All the azoles are going to be slightly different in terms of their inhibition with different CYP enzymes. Some are stronger inhibitors than others. So all azoles are not created the same, but we should anticipate that we need to consider drug interactions um, when we have azoles on board for our patients. Ritonavir you see in the HIV space a lot. You probably already have encountered patients that have drug interactions with some of our ritonavir um, containing compounds. Clarithromycin is another inhibitor. You don't encounter it as much. Usually azithro is used in place to try to avoid this um, uh, in inhibitor effect, but it is present. And then I just have another example of a non-ID-related drug, cimetidine. That's another inhibitor. And finally, rounding out pharmacokinetics, these drugs have to get out of the body somehow. So um, this is when drug levels are going to decrease and leave the body. Um, you hit some sort of maximum concentration, it decays out at a certain rate and leaves the body. Um, you know, it's going to be broken down by the liver, excreted by the liver, guts, or kidney. Um, and we talk about in pharmacy the half-life of the drug. Really what this is broken down to is how much time it takes, usually measured in hours, though some drugs is measured in days, of the 50% decrease in concentration. Um, if we're looking for a drug to be eliminated from the body and the effect to be gone, this is when we talk about the half-life and how long we expect until that drug is out of the system. 
Again, for those that are more visual learners, this is just a quick representation of a drug being administered. You hit some maximum concentration, it gets metabolized and eliminated from the body at a certain rate. So now that we have some of those factors under our belt and out of the way, I'm next going to break down different concepts that you can be thinking about in your head um, as to how maybe you're choosing a drug or choosing the dose of your drug related to your patient. So we'll talk about um, a bit more depth of specific drug PKPD factors. We'll then talk about how maybe the, the type of infection or the site of infection will influence your dosing or drug choice. The organism that you're targeting is also going to influence your dose in many situations. Potentially, the renal and hepatic function of your patient may not um, influence the drug you choose, but definitely can influence how you're going to dose that drug. And then finally, patient-specific factors, such as repeat critical illness. So how do we want to use these concepts and optimize dosing for a patient? You all have seen this visual in some way, shape, or form, and this is representing the time versus concentration of our drug in the system. The x-axis is gonna be time, usually measured in hours. The y-axis is the concentration. So this is going to bring in our PD concepts of our drugs. You're going to have examples of time-dependent antimicrobials. The most classic example of this is our beta-lactams. When we're looking to dose our beta-lactams, you might think in, in your head, oh yeah, most of our beta-lactams we're dosing multiple times a day. Because we're because we're taking advantage of the amount of drug that's over the MIC, um, indicated by that dotted line um, of the organism for as much time as possible before it gets redosed. Now, for our uh, penicillins, our cephalosporins, and our um, carapenems, there's different targets in terms of how much time, ideally, they, the drug concentration should be over the MIC in order for it to be effective. Um, those are going to differ between the different drug classes. When we transition to concentration-dependent um, antimicrobials, this is where we're trying to hit a maximum concentration, a peak of that drug, in order to get the most efficacy from that medication. The best example here is going to be our aminoglycosides, where we're more focused on hitting that peak concentration, that maximum concentration, versus how long the drug concentration is over the MIC4. Um, actually, with our um, extended interval aminoglycoside dosing approaches, we're able to take into um, account and utilize the post-antibiotic effect, where the drug concentration might stay undetectable, but it's still suppressing the regrowth of the organism. That way, we're hitting our maximum concentration, but minimizing the um, necrotoxicity and some of the ototoxicity that comes from continued exposure to the aminoglycosides. And then lastly, we have AUC over MIC antibiotics. I like to consider this to be an exposure-dependent effect. The most classic example that you hear about is vancomycin now. The 2020 guidelines move to AUC-MIC dosing. Um, but more antimicrobials are moving into this space where it's being found that AUC-MIC focuses are going to really be um, uh, dictate how best the efficacy is described with those drugs. This next slide is just showing you examples of which drugs fall into these different categories. You'll see that fluoroquinolones are both in the concentration-dependent and AUC-MIC categories. I would say more of the research nowadays is moving quinolones into the AUC-MIC category. And it's not saying that for Vanco, we actually calculate an MIC for our dosing purposes. You're not doing the same thing with quinolones. You're not doing the same thing with DAPTA, which is also an AUC-MIC drug. But you will see some publications that are looking at PD 
PKPD concepts that they'll talk about the different reference ranges for AUCMIC of these drugs. You're just not going to see it in clinical practice in your patients through drug levels. So now that we have those three general categories of our drugs, the next question is how can we use those concepts to optimize our dosing? So if we have our beta-lactam antimicrobials where we're trying to maximize the time of the drug concentration over the MIC, there's two common approaches that people will try to do. We're trying to uh, extend the infusion of each dose of the beta-lactam. So traditionally in the hospital setting, beta-lactams are given as what's called an intermittent infusion. And that means that the infusion is given over usually 30 minutes. Um, in order to extend the infusion, you'll see that some hospitals as a standard will actually take the approach of administering anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams over three to four hours. Tamba General does not do that as a standalone practice. Um, I think other hospitals do do that as their fixed practice. We will do that at Tamba General as we encounter patients where we have to do it for MIC purposes, for their type of infection, and maybe to optimize the use of the drug because we don't have any other options due to resistance. Um, so just make sure that you know what approaches are being taken at your different hospitals. A dosing approach for extended infusion beta-lactams at one hospital is not going to be the same as using that same dose, um, same dosing approach from an intermittent infusion at another hospital. So you might need to change your dosing depending on what those practices are. The other thing that you can do, and while we won't do it in the hospital, but you will see this in the outpatient setting a lot, is continuous infusion of beta-lactams. This is, again, taking into account the same principles, keeping the drug concentration over the MIC for as long as possible. Um, the caveat here is that not all beta-lactams are going to be stable. A classic example here is our carbapenem antibiotics are not stable for 24 hours in continuous infusion pumps. So those are not going to be drugs that you're going to be able to do continuous infusion in the outpatient setting. This visual is showing you what I just described, whereas the blue, no, I'm sorry, the green um, entry here on the concentration time curve is your typical um, intermittent infusion. You give a dose, it decays out, you redose at some point in the near future, usually every eight hours is shown here. By taking advantage of extended infusion beta-lactams, that's going to be the blue bar. Here they gave what's called a loading dose up front, so it's slightly bigger than the standard dose you give going forward. But you'll see that the, um, the angle of the infusion is slightly less steep than the intermittent infusion because you're giving it over a longer period of time. And you'll also notice that for the blue bar there, it never actually hits that gray dotted line, which is the MIC. So we are effectively keeping the drug concentrations over the MIC for the entire 24 hours um, of dosing. And then the red is going to be that continuous infusion example where we at some point are going to be under the MIC, but we get above the MIC, continue that continuous dosing, stay over the MIC for the whole 24-hour period. Is the kind of the necessity for staying above the MIC, either depending on severity of disease or organism, what drives the decision as to whether or not you give a loading dose, or is that kind of more drug-dependent? Um, I would say it's not really drug dependent. It's more if you believe that you want to stay to get over the MIC as soon as possible and then keep that maximum concentration over the MIC, the loading dose will come into effect. Gotcha. Um, not everyone does the loading dose in this example. They did do the loading dose, mm -hmm. but I would argue that even if you gave a standard dose to start, mm -hmm. um, you're still going to stay over that, that MIC. For the most part, yeah. 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 In a hospital setting, why would somebody choose a continuous infusion versus extended if you're always going to be above the MIC? 
So in the hospital setting, we won't see the continuous infusion as often. And, and really, I just um, explain this by um, resources. So not everyone can have two lines in place. They're probably going, the patient will probably need a line for other purposes, getting other fluids, getting other therapies. So in the hospital, a situation of having multiple lines may not be ideal. But as you transition to the outpatient setting, maybe the patient doesn't want, well, when you're in the outpatient setting, we know that for beta-lactans, we're going to give multiple infusions per day. So the continuous infusion approach is going to be more patient-friendly. If you're in the outpatient setting and doing um, extended infusion, that's going to be more onerous on the patient. You have to sit on an IV pump for three hours. You have to do that several times during the day. So the continuous infusion is more patient-sensitive, um, whereas in the hospital, the extended infusion is taking um, into account and optimizing the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of our beta-lactams while still making it manageable for our nursing partners to perform their other tasks. Does that yes. answer your question? Is it, is it tougher to do, like, TDM with continuous infusion versus, like, extended and all that, or...? So TDM with beta-lactams is definitely an area that more research needs to go into. There are labs across the country that are able to do beta-lactam drug levels. The question is, what patients do you do them on? Yeah. How you actually optimize the pathway to um, draw the level, send it out, get it back? How do you use the level to adjust your dosing? So while I think a hospital, I think Shans in Gainesville, um, they actually have a pharmacist-led um, protocol where they get cefepime levels. They use that to independently change dosing. Many other hospitals don't have that set up. And then their question is, what patients do we do it on? How do we set it up? Um, so that is an area where we're still investigating investigating things. So that verdict's still out on that one. How come uh, some antibiotics are not stable for continuous infusion? Like what makes them, like what does it mean to be stable? It's all related to the drug compound itself. So we know that um, all of these drugs are going to be stable continuously uh, when they're refrigerated. However, when you're administering them as a continuous infusion, they have to be at room temperature. The components of those medications are not all the same just based on their internal intricacies. Um, that's really what's driving the instability that at room temperature, they can stay effective and stay 100% available while they're being infused for the patient. Mm -hmm. So moving into our concentration-dependent antibiotics, and I alluded to this before, our aminoglycosides are going to be those drugs we're trying to hit, that maximum concentration, that peak. Um, and in order to optimize our PKPD with this drug, instead of giving intermittent administrations, we're really giving one during the day, um, hitting that maximum concentration, and then decaying out before we give our next dose so that we're hitting our peak concentration, but we're minimizing the side effects that come with our aminoglycosides. Um, this visual is showing the compare and contrast of our what's called conventional aminoglycoside dosing. You probably have heard doses roughly of one pig per kg every eight hours. That's what's shown here in the dark black line, solid black line. And that's contrasted to our extended interval aminoglycosides, where you see a much bigger dose hitting a much higher peak to improve the efficacy of the drug. It's going to decay out still over that 24 hours and actually towards the end of the dosing interval, you see that that dotted line goes below the MIC. We don't have to be worried that the drug isn't being effective because it does have a post-antibiotic effect after that drug concentration goes below the MIC that is preventing the regrowth of the organism even when it's undetectable.
does the does the uh, like continuous interval is there any correlation especially in amyoglycosides because everybody is like always nervous about the side effects is there no measurable difference between the dosing regimens so if you had somebody where you're really like i have to preserve this guy's kidney at all costs they could pick one reg- regimen over the other or is it just you know overall the total drug exposure is roughly the same and therefore you don't have to worry about it yeah so the <clears throat> with the um extended interval dosing with the aminoglycosides the idea is that we're hitting that peak we're having it decay out so you don't have the drug in detectable concentrations Mm -hmm. for as long. Whereas the other visual, you see that, Mm -hmm. let me get up. Um, You'll see that there's going to be more drug exposure over a longer period of time. And actually over time, you see that this trough level continues to be detectable. The concern is that the longer you have those detectable trough levels is where you see some of those um, side effects. So it's not necessarily the maximum concentration it hits that's causing the damage, but the overall. uh, So there are going to be patient populations that aren't going to qualify for the high dose extended interval because you're going to have too much drug that's going to be available that's going to be exposed to the patient for too long. If someone has kidney failure, you're not going to give a 7 mg per kg aminoglycoside dose because it's not going to eliminate from the body quickly enough to minimize the chance for side effects. I'll say that if you have the patient where you're trying to preserve the kidney, it's probably going to be more of a question of do I want to use an aminoglycoside or do I need to use another alternative? Um, And those are going to be dependent on, hey, talking with your attending, talking with your team and saying what the risk benefit ratio. Gotcha, gotcha. So it's less so much about which dosing schema is better overall, as opposed to if you have the exposure, you're, you, you, either avoid it totally or, or or if you're picking an aminoglycoside and they don't hit any of the exclusion criteria for high dose extended interval that's going to be what yeah, those people are going to pick yes mm-hmm. now going into AUCMIC I'm going to break down a little bit for Vanco here that's the one that hospitals are moving towards and that you're actually going to be getting drug levels to calculate AUC not that y'all are going to do it on the physician side but pharmacists are doing it on the back side so many years ago, with previous iterations of our Vanco guidelines, we were using troughs of uh, 15 to 20 as a surrogate for at least getting our AUC over 400. The thought is, if you have your trough, and again, a trough is going to be a level that's drawn 30 to 60 minutes before the next Vanco dose is given. If you keep that trough concentration within 15 to 20, you should be able to hit your AUC range of at least 400. Now, I've stolen this image from Nick. Um, but this is going to be a nice graphical representation, though it's a lot going on here, right? Um, so if we can break it down on the x-axis is going to be your Vanco trough. So the concentration that you're actually collecting oh in the lab. God. The y-axis is going to be what that corollary Vanco AUC is. But this is trying to tell you the vertical red lines are showing you the general Vanco trough range of 10 to 20. So that's usually where we tried to shoot for our Vanco troughs to be. 15 to 20 for our MRSA infections, our invasive infections, 10 to 15 range for less severe infections, especially some of our skin and soft tissue infections. Now, you would think, as we were expecting, that a range of a trough, 15 to 20, is going to get us at least over an AUC of 400. Well, maybe we were getting over an AUC of 400, but it could go all the way up here. There's a whole bunch of variability here. So what this type of data is telling us is maybe we're trying to get into this 
um, AUC range of 400 to 600 with the trough of 15 to 20 or even 10 to 15, that's not what's happening. Shoot. So we're seeing that there's definitely a chance that we're going to experience increased nephrotoxicity from our patients, and that's what a lot of publications were showing. So over the many years prior to 2020, when the new guidelines came out, it was this development of how do we approach this dosing um, uh, schematic, knowing that we need to go away from, from troughs and go towards AUC dosing. Um, so in 2020, as we're getting, you know, into the COVID pandemic, these guidelines came out. So it did take hospitals a little longer to make that transition if they hadn't made the transition before. Tampa General was in that particular hub. So we knew we had to brace ourselves because <laughs> AUC dosing is coming. And what these guidelines said in 2020 is, hey, we really need to move over to AUC MIC dosing. Now, they did recommend a range of 400 to 600 as our target AUC to go after. They did say that the best data is in invasive MRSA infections. It's important that I say this here because you might be working at hospitals right now or in the future where they're only going to do AUC guided dosing for Vanco for MRSA infections. Tampa General is taking the approach of we're going to do AUC dosing for all of our gram positive infections. If it's good enough for MRSA, we theorize that it should be good enough for our other gram positive infections. However, we recognize that that's a gap in the literature and we actually have a resident working on a project to say, is that what we're actually seeing in clinical practice? Can we use these guidance um, values from the guidelines for strep infections, coagulative staph infections, enterococcal infections? The guidelines also recommend getting a therapeutic AUC in that range that's shown there within 24 to 48 hours. Our internal data at Tampa General shows that we get to a therapeutic AUC roughly after 28 hours. So we are definitely hitting that target in the guidelines. Yes. Do you obtain these AUCs? That's nice. Oh, uh, <laughs> foreshadowing what I'm going to talk about. Perfect. Um, so the guidelines do say that you can take either what's called a Bayesian approach or a two-point kinetic approach. What a Bayesian model is really doing is taking a whole lot of data in the background, so kind of similar to our image we showed before, all those data points are all different types of patients. You know, we were thinking of thousands of patients, not like five or six. Um, putting it into a big model saying this is where we can generate the model of where patients are probably going to fall in the dosing of AUC to get a dosing recommendation. Once we get patient-specific data, what their actual drug levels are after drugs are administered, distributed, all of that stuff, we get patient levels, and then we can actually make a more patient-specific recommendation to hit the AUC targets that we need. The two-level kinetic approach, some hospitals are going towards because Bayesian approaches need um, computer software. They need software that requires money. Not all hospitals want to actually put out that money for that software. So they'll use more calculations that either they develop through a homegrown calculator or some pharmacists out there are actually doing the hard hand math um, to generate these values. Again, not something that you all want to do or have to do. That's what we get um, the responsibility to do. So this is what the DOSMRX software looks like for Tampa General. Um, this is going to be in a platform integrated with Epic, but outside the medical chart, so you all won't be seeing this actual visual. But you see um, towards the top, the concentration time curve, the red um, uh, graph is what the Bayesian model in DOSME is suggesting 
the blue is what the patient kinetics are, and then that X there in the middle is where the drug level actually falls. Um, so this is what we look at at the bottom. This is where we can see um, serum, uh, serum concentration, serum creatinine, as well as our doses being given. And then we do see what the recommendations and the calculations are here for the AUC24. Hospitals that don't have Bayesian software, whether it's in a system outside of Epic or their EMR or within their EMR, are using some sort of calculations to determine AUCs. This is a very simplified representation. It's not all of the equations. And you all are probably looking at this and saying, you know, this looks like gibberish. Um, so this is what your pharmacists are doing on the backside if they don't have systems that are doing the calculations to generate that AUC and make sure that we're in that usually 400 to 500 range, but you can go upwards of 600. Um, if you get closer to the 600 range, you're just going to put your patient at higher risk for nephrotoxicity. So we're going to take a step back, quickly go through a patient case. I will say that I made up this patient, um, and I'm really just trying to get a very obvious answer conveyed here. Um, so don't shoot the messenger. But this 30-year-old female admitted for E. coli bacteremia from a urinary source who identify as pyelonephritis, and the E. coli is pan-susceptible. So anything you would see on your susceptibility panel says S. Patients is Patient is afebrile, no leukocytosis, normal creatinine. They're taking a normal diet, no um, GI issues, no absorption issues, and they have no significant concurrent meds. So the medical team is asking you as the ID fellow or ID attending, um, can we transition to oral ciprofloxacin to finish their course of treatment? My question to you is which of these responses is gonna be most accurate for this case? A, pyelonephritis should never be treated with oral antibiotics. B, ciprofloxacin just doesn't cover E. coli intrinsically, so it wouldn't be an appropriate choice. C, ciprofloxacin has good bioavailability, penetrates the kidney well, so we should be able to use this as a reasonable option. Or D, ciprofloxacin only comes in IV form, so the patient must finish their treatment with cipro IV. C, C. Yay. <laughs> so yes, again, very obvious answer, but this is showing that if you have a highly bioavailable drug, patient doesn't have any absorption issues um, and they're stable and you know, you're able to make that transition, um, definitely it would be reasonable though. Some infections, there could be controversy with oral antibiotics, but in this type of case, very reasonable infection to use oral therapy. <laughs> All right, so. Another slide right here. Yeah, so I will preface this slide by saying that I'm not telling you how to think about this concept of albumin and antibiotics, but I would be um, not doing my job if I didn't bring it up as something you have to think about, right? So albumin is the most important protein that's in our body that may or may not bind to antibiotics. And that's going to be dependent on how highly or not highly bound, protein bound an antibiotic is. So we have to know that only non-protein bound drug is going to be available for activity against the organism to be treating the infection in the body. And we need that drug to be equilibrating with the extravascular space in order for it to treat the infection. Now in a scenario where your patient is septic, septic shock, some sort of critically ill scenario, you can see increased capillary permeability in sepsis. So we can see a decrease in albumin, and that's the scenario that we're running into um, with this concept. 
when you have decreased albumin, you are going to see an increased concentration of drugs that are highly bound to albumin because they're not around in the body in order to be bound to that protein. Now, while you might think, oh, we have more drug concentration that's going to be effective and act against the infection, the problem is that you can see increased elimination of this drug. So maybe early on in the dosing interval, the drug is around to exert its effects, but you're not going to be seeing it towards the end of the dosing interval, and that's where the concern comes into play. I would argue that this concept is not going to be the same for a critically ill patient versus a stable ward patient. So we should think about those patient scenarios differently, as well as what infection we want to treat. Examples of highly protein-bound antibiotics that you likely are talking about um, when you're treating these patients, ceftriaxone and ertapenem, very highly protein-bound. So this is where the controversy and the concern comes in with these drugs when you have patients with low albumin. I'm not going to tell you how to think on this concept. I'm simply saying that this needs to be one of the things that you need to take into account, depending on your patient, depending on your what you're treating, um, that this may favor or disfavor choosing some of these highly protein-bound drugs. Going into our infection site, drugs that penetrate well to certain sites of the body may not need super high doses in order to effectively treat the infection. Great examples of aminoglycosides penetrate the urine well doesn't mean that we have to shoot for peaks of 8 to 10 in order to effectively treat a cystitis infection versus if we do have a more invasive infection, bloodstream infection, something else that's a deeper site, we're going to need to maximize that peak in order and maximize our dosing in order to be effective. I've mentioned this before, but not all drugs are going to cross the blood-brain barrier as well um, as others, and definitely nothing is 100%. So depending on the site that we're trying to penetrate our drugs to, that's going to influence the dose and pot potentially the drug that you choose. So you want to consider the drug, the site of infection, and then if, depending on that site, you need to increase the dosing of your medication. Speaking of organisms of interest, so we're all familiar with CLSI. I do have a link here for the free CLSI resource if, resources, if y'all didn't know that they're available, freely accessible for anyone via that link. Um, but that is going to be the United States system that is going to provide you with breakpoint data. You know, what is the breakpoint for this organism against this drug? Um, and it's also going to tell you that that breakpoint was derived based on a certain dosing schematic. So for in this example, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, the breakpoint is going to be um, less than or equal to eight. And that is based on an assumption that your dosing schematic is one gram every eight hours or two grams every 12 hours. So you can use CLSI and some of that data that that site and that system provides you, in addition to maybe data out there using some Monte Carlo simulation, some probability of target attainment in order to decide what um, drug dosing that you need to be applying for your organism and what you're treating. I could go into several slides on Monte Carlo simulations and probability of target attainment. That's not really for the purposes of today. What I would encourage you guys um, is as you're on your different rotations, talk to your ID pharmacist about how maybe they use some of this data to generate some of their dosing recommendations and their dosing schematics so that you all have a better understanding of how that might go into your decision making. Um, one question I got recently is, how do you decide what DAPTO dose you choose for an intercostal species, and why does the dosing seem to have changed over the last few years? So when the dose for, when the drug first came out, skin and soft tissue infections was four makes per kg, Q24-hour dosing. 
everything else was basically six mg per kg, Q24 hour dosing. I would say it's going to be very uncommon that you see four mg per kg being used for any infection right now. And that's because we're getting more data on where our MIC distributions for these enterococcal organisms are going, um, as well as what those dosing schematics are actually producing in terms of PD targets with our AUC MIC values that are generated in the lab. And are we actually treating our infections accurately now that we have more information about this drug? This is a visual from UCAS showing in the blue bars, the MIC distributions for efficalis, and then in the orange is efacium. You can see that there's definitely discrepancies where efacium has higher MICs than efficalis. This is reflected in more recent CLSI updates where the top line is going to be DAPTO breakpoints for efacium. You see in the note on the right side that the breakpoint susceptible dose dependent is less than or equal to four. This is assuming that you use an eight to 12 mg per kg dosing schematic. If you don't use at least eight to 12 mg per kg, there's no way you're going to hit your MIC targets that you need. Um, and that's why, because we know that the trend is for these MICs to be higher, where more aggressive dosing in order to hit our PD targets are being recommended. Um, the bottom line is for DAPTO um, breakpoints for all other enterococcal species, the breakpoint for susceptible is less than or equal to two, intermediate is four, greater than or equal to eight is resistant, and this is based on slightly lower dosing of six mg per kg. You might see providers still use slightly higher doses for invasive efficalis um, infections, but definitely you need to be more aggressive with your efacium infections if you want to have any chance to be effective with that drug dosing and treat your patients. So original dosing likely was inadequate for VRE infections, and that's VRE efacium. Um, and we know that we need higher dosing to hit our PD targets. Um, I'm going to break this up now with a quick case. So you have a 51-year-old male came in with Pseudomonas aeruginosa bacteremia. This is some of their parameters. So decent sized guy, kidneys look normal. Um, I will say your hospital has no new beta-lactams on formulary. So just the standard things are there. So we're gonna need to find a way to optimize our dosing because the susceptibility right. pattern looks really gnarly. So <laughs> taking this, what drug on this panel do you think that you would prescribe? Not talking about dose at this point, but what drug? Mirapenem. All right. So I will tell you that an MIC of two is the breakpoint. Two is the breakpoint for Pseudomonas aeruginosa from CLSI. So the kidneys are fine. Um, how do you want to dose Mirapenem, considering that we're at the breakpoint and we have no other drug options? Extended. Uh, yes, I agree with that. What what dose? High dose. Yep. Two doses, two grams, excuse me, every eight hours. Um, each dose is going to be a three-hour infusion. Exactly right. Um, so that's an example where we want to take into account and optimize our PD with our uh, beta-lactams extended infusion because, hey, we have no other options. So we need to make sure that we maximize the effect of the smiropenem if we want to clear this guy's bloodstream. Um, finishing this up really quickly, renal dose adjustments, that's where pharmacists come through and make adjustments um, based on a patient's kidney function. The kidneys, we know, is the major route of elimination for many antimicrobials. Unfortunately, when these drugs go through the regulatory process, get FDA approved, 
Um, the process was looking at patients either with stable kidney function or stable chronic kidney function. We're not looking at the cases of AKI and then AKI that gets resolved in a septic and critically ill patient when they're coming in getting fluid resuscitated. We're just looking at stable situations, not dynamic situations. What we've seen in the last few years is a few different drugs that gets warn that get warnings put in their package inserts because these drugs are likely too aggressively dose reduced during a patient's initial um, presentation when they have some AKI. So it looks like their kidneys aren't functioning very well. So we have transient changes, usually decreases in renal function. So compensatorily, we're decreasing our dose that we're giving the patient. But then as our kidney function improves, we're going to have less drug around to be effective to treat the infection. And then we might see some poor outcomes in those patients and maybe the chance for increased drug resistance. So in the package inserts for Advicaz and Zerbaxa, you're going to see this warning that in clinical trials, they saw worse outcomes in those patients with a creatinine clearance between 30 and 50 mils per minute. There's different theories as to why this is the case, but you will hear pharmacists at many hospitals, definitely all of us will be saying this. I know that people at Moffitt will say this is your initial 24 hours of drug administration in a septic patient. If you have a drug like a beta-lactam that has a wider therapeutic index, you have more wiggle room with your dosing, be more aggressive there. We know there's a lot of things that are going on with the patient, a lot of fluid that's being given to them, a lot of changes going on with their system. We want to be more aggressive up front. We can always back down after 24 to 48 hours, but if we miss that early window, it could definitely impact the outcome of our patient. The other thing that these critically ill patients get is renal replacement therapy. So it's a method to remove waste, to remove fluid, to remove some sort of toxin from the body. You can have either intermittent renal replacement therapy. So that can be hemodialysis, peritoneal dialysis. It can also be what we at Tampa General um, have, which is referred to as PERT. So prolonged intermittent renal replacement therapy, but then you can have continuous 24 hour renal replacement therapy. Different factors are going to go into the CRT circuit and influence what drugs, what solutes, what solvents get actually pulled from the circuits. Not all circuits are the same. So our systems at Tampa General probably are different than the VA, probably different from Moffitt. So you can't use the same exact dosing approach for all of these drugs just because they're on CRT. Um, that's definitely something you're going to need to talk to your pharmacy colleagues at any hospital you work at. What is your protocol dosing schematic for different antimicrobials when they're on CRT, when they're off CRT? Because those factors are just not things you guys are going to know up front. Um, so make sure that you talk to pharmacy about that. There is this um, table that's in a 2005 paper from Trotman and colleagues. I would say people are either using this or up to date to get their dosing references. I would talk to the pharmacists at the hospitals that you're working at to get exact dosing that's going to be appropriate for those systems that they utilize. Finishing this out with some patient factors, body weight is going to go into the equation as to how we're going to dose certain drugs. So obese patients, BMI usually we're thinking of at least over 30, may require increased doses of antibiotics. So definitely our beta-lactams can come into play. The group out of Stanford actually has some really good papers out there that break down a lot of the literature and data and say, hey, how does obesity affect the dosing of different drugs, not just beta-lactans, but all different antimicrobials. So that can be a good reference to review when you have some free time. 
Um, an example here that those papers would say is a drug like cefepime. They recommend in someone that has normal renal function to dose the drug maximum at two grams Q8 and to consider an extended infusion for each of those doses if the patient has an invasive pseudomonas aeruginosa infection with an MIC of eight in order to optimize your PKPD. And then a few things about what we see in patients with critical illness, renal function and renal dysfunction can occur. I just talked about our renal dose adjustments, so definitely take that into account. But don't be afraid to be aggressive with your beta-lactam dosing, especially early on. You can always back down. Fluid resuscitation, we talked about our volume of distribution and the impact that all of this excess of fluid has on our drug dosing. So you need to keep that in mind. The next concept of augmented renal clearance is definitely one that's gaining traction, gaining popularity. Unfortunately, there's not something you can see in the chart that says this patient has augmented renal clearance going on. But in our critically ill population, it needs to be something we think about, and we will need to be more aggressive if we think that the patient is experiencing augmented renal clearance. And then finally, at Tampa General, we will encounter ECMO patients. Um, the ECMO circuit is going to be very good for the patient to help them with their illness is going to be very bad for some drugs and that drugs can be sequestered in these ECMO circuits. They're going to be sequestered to different extents depending on the drug. Um, and definitely if you have an ECMO patient, talk with your pharmacist, do some reading to say, hey, do I have to worry about increasing any of my doses of my drugs because of consideration for sequestration? This is probably a population where more data and more research is going into for beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring because we know that there can be the need to potentially increase our beta-lactam doses in an ECMO patient. So in conclusion, drug dosing is a primary focus for pharmacists, but I would argue that these dosing concepts should be um, uh, concepts that you all as physicians should have a general understanding of. PK and PD is going to drive our patterns of dosing for antimicrobials. You can always call your pharmacist or ID pharmacist um, for assistance. I would encourage you all as you're going through your training years to use this time to challenge yourself, learn about these drug dosing principles, just because you don't know the resources that are going to be available depending on where you practice. Use this time to challenge yourself and Come up with your own dosing schematics. Talk with your pharmacist and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking about dosing. Do you agree or disagree? And if you disagree, tell me why. Let me learn from you while I have this time to be going through that. Um, you can do that if you want, but now is the time to do so. So I know that it's 10.01, um, but are there any questions that I can answer? How do you guys decide to use uh, total body weight versus ideal when you're dosing? Like, what do you guys take into consideration? It's all dependent on the drug. Okay. So for some drugs, we know based on the data out there that we have to use total body weight. Others, um, IVA cyclovir is probably one that you think of ideal body weight, though if someone's morbidly obese, people argue for, and depending on the infection, argue for adjusted body weight. Um, many hospitals will have tables that um, are references that say, hey, for this drug, use this weight. Okay. But that's a good question. I would say wherever you go, just ask them for what their reference is, okay. um, and those are going to be available. Are there any considerations, because we kind of ran into to this a little bit for somebody at Moffitt over the weekend, a couple weekends ago, for extremely obese patients with, say, skin infection. Is there ever a concern for taking their weight in consideration for making sure that the drug gets to that site, considering they have quite a ways physically to go until it penetrates that site? And in that case, would you it would kind of reconsider what the kind of standard would be? I would say that 
the larger and larger your patient gets, you definitely need to take that into consideration. Um, it's also going to be a function of how severe the infection is. So very simple to treat infections likely don't require maxing out your drug dosing. But if you have someone that has maybe a more aggressive skin and soft tissue infection, mm -hmm. maybe they're teetering on, are they going to decompensate a bit? I would definitely consider, um, depending on the drug and if you need to increase the doses like our beta-lactams, you may need to do so at least early on until you see clinical improvement. And then at that point, you can always back down. It's a little harder to say, oh, let's get more aggressive on our dosing and try to make up for that time or that um, the duration that we've lost. Right. You can always be more aggressive and then back down as you get more data. Make sure that they stay stable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you all for being attentive and inviting us today. Thank you. Thank you.